O God, you make us glad by the yearly festival of the birth of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that we, who joyfully receive him as our Redeemer, may with sure confidence behold him when he comes to be our judge, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, you have fulfilled the hope of your old covenant people, the people of Israel, by preparing salvation in the presence of all peoples and a light for revelation to every nation. Shine this light upon us, Heavenly Father. Open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word and in your purposes for history, and that we may learn to live in faithfulness before you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. G.K. Chesterton once made the point that while we have many stories and rituals to prepare us before Christmas Day, we have almost nothing for the days after Christmas. Uh, And culturally, I think he is exactly right. We have all kinds of hype and build up before Christmas Day, and then everything just kind of crashes and ends all at once on December 25th. And that's why I think there is a lot of wisdom in the traditional church calendar which views Christmas not just as a day, the day of Jesus' birthday, but as a festival season, a 12-day season, a a 12-day festival. So if you're wondering why we're still singing Christmas songs on December 31st, why we still have the tree up and the Advent candle, this is why Christmas is not just one day. A single day couldn't contain it. It's a 12-day season. And, of course, that means it's fitting that this whole season be filled with feasting and presents and singing and lights and trees. See, it's the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes of Christmas that really make it what it is. Again, the celebration's just too big to be contained in one day. It's common, of course, to hear people complain about the materialism of Christmas. But there's nothing wrong with matter. God has made us and the world in such a way that we cannot celebrate without material things. You have to use stuff to celebrate. So yes, it's possible to turn things into idols, and that would be bad. Uh, But all of the talk about materialism and and the guilt trips that were often uh, taken on, I think are really misguided. It would not make any sense to celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God without using created material things. The whole point of Christmas, after all, is God taking on a body, the Creator entering the creation, God putting on the matter of a human body and coming among us, yes, to eat and to drink and also to suffer and to die for us. Eating and drinking with us, suffering and dying for us. This is what God in the flesh has come to do. It's interesting how all the Gospels that tell us the Christmas story in one way or another, the story of God becoming man, tell the story as a new creation story, not as an escape from creation, as if God has come to rescue us out of the material world, but as a new creation, as the restoration and transformation of the old creation into something new and better and glorious. Indeed, this is one of the most unique things about the gospel among all its various competitors, the other religions and worldviews and philosophies that are out there. This is one of the things that makes the gospel so utterly unique. 
The gospel shows us matter is not the problem. The body is not the problem. If matter is not the problem, what is? Sin is the problem. And so salvation is not an escape from matter. It is the redemption of the material world. This physical creation, our bodies included, will be redeemed at the last day. And so, for example, in John's Gospel, we're told that the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate, and He is the true tabernacle. So what was the tabernacle all about? If Jesus is the true tabernacle and His purposes are fulfilled in Him, what does that mean? Well, the tabernacle is the place where God and man would meet. It's the place where heaven and earth come together. The tabernacle was the place of sacrifice. And so, of course, Jesus will be the true and final sacrifice. But the tabernacle was also the place of feasting, the place where you went to have a meal with God. Jesus is now our communion meal with God. But you can't do the Christian faith without food. You can't do the Christian faith without material things. We see that there in John 1. Luke tells us in his Christmas account that Jesus was born in Bethlehem which means house of bread. And Jesus was then laid in a manger, a feed box for animals, symbolizing He has come to be the world's food. He is the true manna that has come down from heaven, the true house of bread that has come down for the life of the world. And so it's no wonder that Christians celebrate Christ's birth, His tabernacling among us, with feasting. Because there's food everywhere in the Christmas accounts and the Gospels. Further, in Luke's Gospel, as we've seen, the birth of Jesus is surrounded by singing. Luke gives us a veritable symphony of salvation, a Christmas choir, as the voices of Mary and Zacharias and the angels and Simeon all blend together to sing Christ's praises, to sing praises to Jesus, to celebrate this new creation, new songs for the new creation God is bringing in. So again, it's no wonder that Christians celebrate Christ's birth with song. How could we do otherwise when you have all these songs erupting from the story of Christmas in Luke's Gospel? So all that to say, I hope your feasting and your celebrating and your singing did not come to an end on December 25th. I hope you were just getting started then. The celebration of Christmas is too big for just one day. This is actually the seventh day of Christmas today. And because it is the only Sunday during the Christmas season this year, it is Christmas Sunday. So I want to wish to you all a Merry Christmas here this morning. Merry Christmas too. Now we've been looking at these songs in Luke's Gospel, in the first couple chapters of Luke's Gospel. Uh, and we've been looking at these songs because they so clearly crystallize what Christmas is all about. What we're celebrating, the joy of it all, is packed into these songs. And today we want to look at the fourth and final of these songs. We want to look at the Song of Simeon. Uh, it's very interesting that in this section of Luke we have yet another male-female pair. Now, they're not husband and wife this time, uh, but this is in keeping with the pattern in Luke's Gospel that's already emerged. We've already met Elizabeth and Zacharias, the first male-female pair. Then Mary and Joseph, another male-female pair. And now we have Simeon and Anna, two witnesses 
a male witness and a female witness. First, we meet the male witness, but because it's not good for the man to be alone, to witness alone, a second witness, the female witness is added. Now, what do we know about Simeon and Anna? We know that they are old. Uh, We're not told Simeon's age, but he is obviously near death. He has been waiting for the birth of Messiah and has been told he will not die before he sees the Messiah. And Anna is also old. She is an older woman. Uh, She's been waiting patiently for Israel's redemption, as well as Simeon. Simeon is a prophet. Anna is a prophetess. And together they are in the temple. We find both in the temple. And really together they are representatives. They are models for Israel. Models for how Israel should respond to and receive Jesus. Simeon may have also been a priest or a rabbi there in Jerusalem. Anna seems to have been a deaconess, uh, always in the temple. Those deaconesses were single women very often who would uh, minister to other women in the temple precincts. And it's interesting, I said they're both old. Uh, I know how women don't like to have their age revealed. Uh, but Luke has revealed to us uh, Anna's age uh, and told us something about her life. She was married for seven years. But now she has been a widow, and she is 84 years old, an 84-year-old widow. She'd only been married seven years, so she's been a widow, obviously, for a really long chunk of her life. And I think the fact that Luke includes her age is significant. It must be a sign or a symbol to us in some way. And so uh, whenever we have numbers like this in the Bible, whenever details like this are included, we always need to scratch our heads a little bit and ask why. Uh, and start to ponder it and contemplate it. And if you do that, what, what most commentators traditionally have come up with is something like this. The number 84 is 7 times 12. Uh, a lot of numbers in the Bible have very clear meanings or associations. 7 is the number of fullness and perfection. Uh, 12 is the number of Israel because there were 12 tribes in Israel. So 7 times 12 means Israel has come to the fullness of time. Uh, Israel's come to the fullness of time. And Anna represents, therefore, Israel's situation. She is a widow uh, waiting for redemption, which really depicts Israel uh, at this stage of her history. She's been fasting and praying because she's waiting, which is what Israel should have been doing. And now we find the one she has been waiting for has Arrived. We're given her genealogical information. She belonged to the tribe of Asher, which is one of the lost tribes that seems now found. And yet, in a way, we have to say that that information belongs to the old age and is not going to matter anymore. An age is coming when genealogies won't matter. It won't matter what tribe of Israel you were born into. What will matter is being born from above or being born again through Jesus. Uh, Anna has been waiting for Jesus, Simeon has been waiting for Jesus, and Jesus has now arrived. And because the one they've been waiting for has arrived, these two old saints begin to celebrate. They celebrate this baby being brought into the temple. And so together, Simeon and Anna bear witness to Jesus and what he's come to do. Together, they point us to Jesus. In their old age, they represent the old covenant, which is about to die. It's about to fade and wither away. The old covenant is dying. The old Israel is dying. 
And yet we know the Old Covenant pointed to Christ. The whole purpose of the Old Covenant was to prepare the way for Christ. That's what Simeon and Anna had been doing. But now that Christ has come, the types and the shadows of the Old Covenant are fulfilled and they can fall away. It's like scaffolding that is used to build a building. But once the building is complete, you pull down that scaffolding. The scaffolding wasn't bad, it just wasn't forever. And that's how the Old Covenant is. Simeon and Anna represent that passing order even as they point to the new. Simeon and Anna embody both the purposes and the obsolescence of the Old Covenant. Now it's interesting, uh, at the end of Luke's Gospel, we meet another male-female pair on the road to Emmaus. This is, again, in keeping with Luke's pattern of continually giving us two witnesses, a male and a female. And in Luke 24, when we meet this male-female couple, we find that they are distraught. Their hopes have been dashed. They thought Jesus was going to be the one. They thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah who would redeem Israel, but they think Jesus has failed. He's failed to redeem Israel because uh, obviously He couldn't have been the Christ because He got crucified. And the cross dashed all their hopes. Their hopes dashed against the tree. But what's interesting in Luke 24 is this couple is joined by a mysterious stranger uh, as they're walking along the road. This mysterious stranger joins them on the road and begins speaking with them and then breaks bread with them. And in the breaking of bread, their eyes are opened. Their eyes are open to the truth and they come to see that this is the Christ in their midst. That Christ is risen. That it's Christ who has been walking with them and He is indeed the Redeemer of Israel. He has indeed redeemed Israel through His cross. It wasn't a failure. It was how He accomplished His mission. And so just as Luke begins with a series of double witnesses to Jesus, these male-female pairs bearing witness to Jesus. So he will end his gospel the same way, with a male-female pair praising Jesus and telling others about him. An interesting pattern in Luke's gospel. Now we want to focus really on Simeon this morning because it's his song uh, that is really uh, our focus this morning. Simeon comes into the story when Mary and Joseph come to the temple. And Mary and Joseph come to the temple to fulfill the law. They bring Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to the law for Mary's purification. In fact, several times Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph are acting according to the law or according to the custom of the law. Luke wants us to see Mary and Joseph are fulfilling the old covenant. Their son is fulfilling the old covenant. It's just what Paul says in Galatians 4. Jesus was born under law. He's born under the law. And from his infancy, he kept the law. And of course, his parents were a part of that. When Simeon is introduced to us, we're told in verse 25 that he was a just and devout man. And his righteousness and devotion are seen in that he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the name given to Jesus here. That's how Jesus is described. He will be Israel's consolation or Israel's comfort is the word. He's Israel's consoler. He's Israel's comforter. The Holy Spirit is upon Simeon and it is revealed to him that the one he has been awaiting has arrived. 
And again, he's told he will not die before he sees the Lord's Christ. He will see the source of life before he dies. Before he dies, he will see the source of life. So the Spirit leads him to the temple, to Jesus' parents, to meet Jesus. And he takes this baby Jesus up into his arms and he sings a song. He sings a song to baby Jesus, but this song is no lullaby. It's a war song. When we look at this song line by line, what we find is that this is really a new Exodus song. Just as we saw when we looked at the song of another old man, the Benedictus by Zechariah at the end of Luke chapter 1, there Zechariah really used the Exodus as a paradigm for the redemption that Jesus would bring. So it is here. Simeon uses the language and themes of the Exodus to describe what Jesus will do. Which again means everything about Jesus has to be understood in light of what has gone before. He is the fulfillment of all that has gone before. The Exodus, where God frees his people from slavery and brings them into the promised land, that's the ultimate paradigm in scripture for redemption. And Simeon gets that and he uses the Exodus story to explain what Jesus will do in his song. The Exodus is all about freeing slaves, and that's really where Simeon begins. He sings literally. I'll give you a literal translation of what he sings here. He says, Master, now release your slave in peace. This is taken usually as a reference to Simeon's death, that at death he will be released from slavery in some way. And that could be part of it because he has been told he would not die before he sees the Christ, and now he sees the Christ, and now he can die. But I'm not sure that that really exhausts the meaning or that that's even the main meaning. Simeon knows that Israel has been in exile, that the people are still enslaved. They're in bondage and not really to the Romans. That doesn't matter so much, their political condition. What matters is their spiritual condition. They're obviously enslaved by sin and by Satan. They're in bondage to idols. And Simeon knows that when God sends his Messiah, those idols will be toppled and the people will be set free from bondage to sin and Satan. And so Simeon sees this is happening. This is going to happen through this child. He will be a new Moses redeeming and liberating God's people. And so Simeon sees himself as a slave who will undergo an exodus, who will be freed to live in peace, in shalom because of this child. He says this is according to God's word in his song. Again and again, we've seen it, how Jesus is embedded in the story of Israel and he cannot be understood apart from that framework. He cannot be understood apart from Israel's history and scripture. That's why it's so important to know your Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, so you can see how Jesus acts according to God's word. And really what you need to see is that God has made promises and now He has fulfilled those promises in Jesus. All of His promises are yes and amen in Him. Everything Jesus does is according to the Scriptures, according to God's Word. And so through Isaiah, just to give you one example, God had promised comfort for Israel. Comfort, comfort these, my people. That was the language of the new exodus that God would bring about. Well, Simeon has been told he will see Israel's comforter. He will see the comfort of Israel. You remember in the upper room discourse just before Jesus went to the cross, he promised to his disciples another comforter. Well, there's another comforter. There's a first comforter. That first comforter is Jesus himself. He's the one who fulfills all of those promises to bring comfort 
to God's people who have been in bondage and slavery in darkness. Verse 30, Simeon goes on. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is salvation. This baby is God's salvation. We saw, especially when we looked at Mary's Magnificat, how Jesus comes to turn everything upside down. Everything gets topsy-turvy when Jesus comes. Those who are on thrones are brought down and the lowly are exalted and enthroned. And here you see Simeon capturing that dynamic because he sees in this baby the strength of God's salvation. In the weakness of a baby, the power of God is being revealed. But there may be even more going on here. Uh, The Greek word that is translated as salvation here is a fairly unique word, fairly unusual in the New Testament. Uh, It's actually used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament for the peace offering. So whenever the peace offering shows up, you know, a peace offering that is described in Leviticus and that would be offered in the temple, and it's the one where the worshipers got to eat part of it, so God's sharing his own food with his worshipers. They get to eat at God's table, as it were. Uh, Whenever the peace offering shows up in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this is the word that is very often used to describe that peace offering. So what Simeon may be saying here is, my eyes have seen your peace offering. After all, this is taking place in the temple, and Simeon has just spoken of departing in peace. The culmination, you know, the exodus is all about the Passover, and the Passover is a peace offering. And of course, we know at the Last Supper, Jesus will transform the peace offering of the Passover into the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, our communion meal. And so now we really do feast on Jesus, on His body and blood as our peace offering. Jesus is our peace offering. The Lord's Supper is our peace offering. Simeon recognizes this. Jesus is our peace offering. He is our communion With God. God is sharing Himself with us in giving us Jesus. Jesus is how we have communion with God. How we have assurance of God's favor and God's forgiveness. It's all in Jesus. Everything that the Israelites longed for, everything that their law and sacrifices and tabernacle trained them to yearn for is going to be found in Jesus. Verses 31 and 32, Simeon goes on singing. He says, "...what you have prepared..." before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. That really is one of the striking things about Jesus coming. He comes from Israel, but not only for Israel. He comes not just to redeem the nation of Israel, but to redeem all nations, to be the Savior of the world. And of course, what that looks like and what all that means is going to get worked out in the rest of the New Testament. When the mission of the gospel, the mission of the church, goes out to the nations, when it goes forward. Passages like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go and disciple the nations. Go make the nations my disciples, baptizing them and teaching them everything I have commanded. Luke's gospel ends with his own version of the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go and preach repentance from sin and the remission of sin in every nation, not just to the Jewish people, but to everyone. This was the big controversy. The first big controversy in the church was over whether or not the nations, whether or not the Gentiles could come into the church, whether or not Gentiles could be Christians without first becoming Jewish. But Simeon here already gets it. He already understands God's worldwide purpose. 
to build a family of Abraham out of all the families of the earth. The promised family of Abraham made up of all the families of the earth. See, all our talk about diversity in our culture today, you know really where that comes from? It comes from the church. It comes from the gospel. It comes from the scriptures. And God wants to see diversity in His church. He wants people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language brought into His kingdom. A kingdom of many colors, as it were. At the end of Simeon's song, Jesus is called a light to all men and the glory of Israel. This echoes the opening of John's Gospel where Jesus is called the light that lights every man and the glory of the one true God which no man had ever seen but which has now been made known. Simeon sings about Jesus as light and glory. Go read John's prologue, the opening passage in John's Gospel and you will see all about light and glory. Jesus is light and glory, divine light and divine glory, divine light and glory now seen in human flesh, now embodied and made visible. And again, it's so significant that Simeon says these words in the temple. I think that really leaves us no doubt as to what he means. In the temple, we find light and glory. In the temple, there was a candle stand. There was a menorah to give light, to image the light of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of that candle stand. He is the light of God. Jesus is uncreated light. Light of light. God of God. Jesus is God's uncreated light. He is the source of all light. The light that drives out and overcomes the darkness. And there was also glory. In the temple, in the most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God dwells there between the cherubim enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's very interesting that uh, when the temple was rebuilt, there was never any visible manifestation of God's glory moving into the temple as there had been with Moses' tabernacle. But now Simeon says the glory of God has arrived in the temple. And again, this just picks up on a theme that Luke has been building in his gospel already. If you go back to Luke chapter 1, when Mary is told that she will have a child, she will conceive and bear a son even though she is a virgin, the angel says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. It's very interesting. That same word, overshadow, is used to describe the glory of God coming into the tabernacle of Moses in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 40, it says the glory cloud overshadowed the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled it. What is the angel saying to Mary? He's saying to Mary, you will become a temporary temple housing the light and glory of God in your womb. And now she's given birth to the one who is light and glory. And the one who is light and glory has been brought to the temple. And now Simeon lays eyes on him, the light and glory of God. And Simeon sings. He bursts out in song, singing the light and glory of God have arrived in the temple. What the people were longing for to see the glory move into this temple that's been rebuilt. It's now happening. Jesus is the light and glory of God, He said to be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. 
See, Simeon's song, like all the other songs we've looked at in Luke's Gospel, it's really all about the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. What is Simeon's song telling us about Jesus? Jesus is the uncreated light of God now shining in human flesh, breaking into the darkness of our world to illumine and enlighten and to save. He is the light of God who has come to drive out the darkness. The light of God shines in and through the flesh of this baby. In his weakness and his vulnerability, the light radiates out to drive out the darkness, to defeat the darkness. Jesus is light. And Jesus is glory. Jesus is the very glory of God. The glory that had been invisible to men, hidden from men, now in Him is made visible to all. Light has become flesh. Glory has become flesh. Jesus is the most holy place turned inside out. Jesus is God turned inside out. God unveiled. God showing Himself to His people and to the nations. He is the light and glory of God. Simeon knows this. And Simeon sings about this. Simeon knows that as he holds this baby, he is beholding God's light and God's glory. Isaiah had prophesied this. Isaiah 60. The prophet says light and glory will shine when God's Messiah arrives. Arise, the prophet says. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Jesus is the light and the glory. And so it's no wonder, as Simeon sang these things, that Mary and Joseph marveled, thinking all these things are true of this little baby that God has given to us. They marveled at these things spoken about their son and sung about their son. But Simeon has still more to say. He prophesies to Mary. He says, behold, this child, is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Why does Simeon add this prophecy to his song? If Jesus is light and glory, if Simeon and Anna are modeling the way Jesus is to be received, Simeon also wants the parents of Jesus, and especially Mary, to understand not everybody's going to respond to her son in this way. Not everybody's going to see the light and glory of God in her son Jesus. Simeon says there will be the fall and rising of many. It's actually an odd order. We might think rising and falling, but Simeon says the fall and rising. And it gets even more interesting. The word for rising there is really the word for resurrection. It's for the fall and resurrection of many. And I think if we look at the rest of the gospel, we can see what Simeon means by these words in this prophecy. Jesus certainly will fall and then rise again. He will undergo a falling and then a resurrection. He'll undergo death and resurrection himself. But Simeon says he will take others with him. Indeed, Israel as a whole will fall and then be resurrected in a new way, in a new form in him. Simeon says that Jesus, this child, is a sign that will be spoken against, the sign that will be contradicted. That sounds ominous, 
And of course it is. Jesus is a sign that will be spoken against, that will be contradicted. And of course, the sign of Jesus himself leads to another sign, which is the cross. And it seems that this has to be what Simeon is talking about because he ties it to Mary's coming sorrow. Here she is, the joyous mother of a baby boy. You you moms, think how joyous it is when you bring your child home and you're enjoying being a mother to your newborn. That's Mary. She's rejoicing in her son, and yet she's told that great pain awaits her, that a sword will pierce through her own heart. What does Simeon mean? Well, just fast forward to the crucifixion. Mary will be there at the foot of the cross when her beloved son dies the most terrible, shameful death possible. When the nails pierce her son, a sword will will pierce her heart as well. That's what Simeon is saying. But then he goes on and he makes it clear that this will not be the end of her son. This will actually be uh, a judgment on those who have contradicted him and opposed him. When Jesus is crucified, he's not the one being judged. Instead, it is his crucifiers who are being judged. And so Simeon uses language that sounds a lot like other biblical passages that speak about the final judgment, like Romans chapter 2. Simeon says the secrets, the the thoughts, the hidden intentions of many hearts will be revealed. See, Jesus will be stripped naked and crucified, but really it is the hearts of men that will be exposed. Yes, Jesus will be stripped naked and crucified, but it's the hearts of men that will truly be stripped naked and exposed. Mary's heart will be cut open in grief over her son. But every heart is going to be cut open. Every heart is going to be pierced with a sword so that God might peer inside at our deepest thoughts and intentions. What is Simeon saying? Mary's son, the Christ, the Lord, the light, the glory, the one who is the Savior and comforter of Israel so that all who trust in Him will be released from their slavery. They'll be redeemed and brought to peace. All these glorious things are true of Jesus. He is the Savior. But Simeon is saying He is also the judge. And yes, He's come to to, to form and unite a new humanity in Himself drawn not just from Israel, but from all the nations of the earth. He's going to unite the human race in Himself. That's what the church is. The reunion of humanity in Christ. But Simeon tells us also He is going to divide the human race. Through Jesus, the the human race will be cut in two. Through Jesus, humanity will be sliced apart. So those who embrace Jesus are on one side and those who reject Him are on the other. Yes, Jesus will bring peace, but He also brings conflict. It says in Matthew's Gospel, I come to bring not peace, but a sword. He brings salvation, but also condemnation. He unites, but He also divides. We know even as a baby, Jesus proved to be controversial. Even at the time of His birth, Herod wanted Him dead. And perhaps already Herod has sent out his soldiers to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to stamp out a potential rival. Jesus was controversial from the beginning. Violence and conflict are part of the Christmas story. That's why you've heard me say before, nativity sets should include not just the Holy Family and the shepherds and the Magi, but also Herod's soldiers with swords because they're part of the story too. 
Christmas brings conflict and judgment and violence into the world. Yes, Jesus comes to unite, but He also divides. And again, this is all according to the Word of God. There are actually prophecies in the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, that show that, yes, the Messiah will bring in light and glory, but He will also be a stumbling block. Passages like Psalm 118 that say that the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, but they're going to stumble over this stone because of their unbelief. He's a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. And Jesus continues to be the stone of stumbling. So those who blind themselves to His light and glory, those who refuse His way of peace, will find Him and know Him only as a judge. Well, what do we do with this story? Simeon and Anna are certainly models for us. They were models for Israel. They're models for us today. They're models for us because they embrace Christ as the Christ. They see the Christ for who He is. They tell others about Christ. They sing Christ's praises. They know that Christ saves and judges. They hope in Christ. They put their trust in Christ. We have these two old saints near death. But even as their lives are draining away, they are full of hope and faith. They are running their race to the end. They're going to cross the finish line in faithfulness. And because of that, I think we have a great deal to learn from them. They are our elders and they have a great deal of wisdom for us. You know, one of the best things you can do, especially those of you who are really young, but all of us really, one of the best things you can do is find an elderly Christian. An elderly Christian, and yes, by that, to, to be blunt, I mean someone who is near death, who doesn't have a lot of days left. Find an elderly Christian and talk to them about their experience, their walk with God. Interview them the way you might interview Simeon and Anna if you could. Because when you do so, what you will find is that many of the things that you think are a really big deal right now are not. And many of the things that you don't think are a big deal right now really are. Age and wisdom bring perspective and turn your gaze from history to eternity. See, when you're young, you can still envision a future, a future full of possibility. That's what's so wonderful about youth. All the possibilities and all the opportunities out in front of you. But when you get old and you're near death, that sense of possibility and opportunity about the future is gone. When you get old, your life is what it is. Your story is mostly written. You're in the last chapter of life. The clock of life is ticking down. Your life is mostly behind you. That's where we find Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2. See, what really distinguishes youth from old age is that sense of time, especially about the future. The young have a future life to look forward to. The old do not. That's the difference between youth and old age. That's why time moves so much faster when you get older. A teenager thinks of 20 years as a really long time. But for a 50-year-old, 20 years seems like yesterday. It's not a long time. Simeon and Anna are near death. They know they have very little time left. And so they can focus solely on what is most important. They turn their gaze to a further and higher horizon. But even in our youth, 
we must know this. Even the young must know this. Death is coming for us all. No one gets out of life alive. And the sooner you come to know that, the better. Death is followed by judgment day, so you have the the certainty of death. And then following death, you have judgment day. Judgment is coming. And our hearts are going to be exposed. Your heart is going to be cut open and laid bare. Now, knowing that that is coming, knowing that death is certain and that judgment day will follow, if you could know now what you will know then, how would you live today? If you could know now what you will know then, how would you live today? Or to put it another way, what happens when you look at your life today in light of your coming death and in light of that final judgment we were all faced? I think Simeon and Anna show us how to live. They show us wisdom. They show us what really matters. How to live in light of death and judgment and eternity. And that's because they show us what matters is Christ. Christ is all in all. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the source and the goal of everything. And the only way to not waste your life is to live for Him. To wait for Him. To trust in Him. To put your hope in Him. Otherwise, your life is wasted. Every day spent not serving and trusting Christ is a day wasted. But at the same time, nothing that is done for Christ will be wasted. Anything not done for Christ is wasted. Nothing done for Christ will be wasted. And so every hard day's work, put in for Christ, with Christ as your master. Every diaper changed in Christ's name. Every word of encouragement spoken for Christ's sake. These are the things that count Forever. And they count because they show that Christ is the light and the glory. They show that Christ is the comforter and the Savior. Trust Christ in all of life. Obey Christ in all of life. Treasure Christ above everything else in life. Cling to Christ and to Christ alone. Seek your meaning and your purpose and your identity in Him. Otherwise, your life is a waste. And when your heart is cut open at the last day, There's not going to be anything there worth preserving. Only if you live for Christ. Only if you live for Christ will your life have lasting significance and purpose and value. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in all He has done for you to secure your forgiveness. All the the grace and mercy He's poured out on you. The gifts He gives you each day. Even the gift of your next breath. And it is a gift. Don't take that next breath. For granted. When John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor and hymn writer, was almost Anna's age. I think he was 83, actually. uh, 83 years old, shortly before his death. He wrote words that I think Simeon and Anna would heartily approve of. He said, as an old man facing death, he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner And Christ is a great Savior. Those are the things that will allow you to face death and judgment with confidence, 
with serenity, with peace. Those are the things that will allow you to live in the present day, no matter how old you are, with purpose and meaning and confidence. Simeon and Anna show us this. Simeon and Anna show us that even the oldest, who, as I already said, really have no future to look forward to, no earthly future, really do have a future to look forward to, a future in Christ. Even in their old age, they have much to look forward to because they know, they discovered that this child God had sent into the world would be the light and glory of God. He would be victorious over sin and death and darkness. Yes, He would fall as we all must fall in death, but He would rise again and in Him we are raised as well. And so we can face death in Him with confidence. Yes, we will fall in death, but in Christ we will rise again to light and glory forever. A new and never-ending story of joy and gladness. This is the good news that Simeon and Anna embraced. The good news they bore witness to. The good news of Jesus Christ. That what God began with Christmas, the story that began with Christmas will never end. Not even death ends this story. This story that began with Christmas is a story that goes on and on forever. In Christ, we always have more to look forward to. In Christ, the future is always ours. We always have more to look forward to. More light, more glory, more of God. Let's give thanks together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for giving us Christ Jesus, Your Son, our Savior, the Word made flesh who came to redeem us, to bring about the new exodus, to rescue us from sin and death and Satan, to drive out the darkness with His glorious light. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. May we embrace Him and live for Him every day. No matter how young or old we are, may we find our future secure in Him. And we know that our lives are hidden in Him and are therefore safe, come what may. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.